starting a series through the book of New Testament book of Galatians. And uh, in Galatians, um, we've seen Paul addressing uh, people turning away from God's grace and back to legalism, away from his provision and back to to following rules, and uh, it breaks his heart to see it happen. And so this this morning, as as we get started, um, what you're going to see is Paul's going to show us some before and after pictures of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You ever see any before and after pictures? You ever see any good ones? I have some for you. Uh, first, this is, this is Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln. This is him before the Civil War, and this is him after the Civil War. Had quite the effect on him, didn't it? All the stress. You could show about any president from the beginning of their term to the end, and you see just an incredible aging process happen due to the stress of their job. Uh, then after that, you see, uh, I've got another one here. I got, this is the actually after and then before. This is Tom Cruise after having his teeth straightened. This is him before having his teeth straightened. Uh, you've seen the movie, The Life of Pi? Have you heard of that movie? Um, well, here's, they, they do some special effects in that movie, and this is The Life of Pi before the special effects. And then they took that stuffed animal and turned it into this tiger. Same image. Isn't that crazy? Maybe one of my, my favorite before and afters here um, is uh, these ducks crossing the road. How do you like that? There's a duck uh, before he crosses the road and then after he crosses the road. I couldn't resist. I just liked that when I found it. But, you know, Paul tells us uh, that there's a distinct before and after when you become a Christian. There's things that are true of you before, and there's things that are true of you after. And the key to living the Christian life is to know and remember and remind yourself and believe the things that are true of you now that you're a Christian and not to turn back to the things that were true of you. And that's what Paul's going to talk about with us this morning from God's Word. So we're going to read it together. I'm going to read the whole passage. And then uh, we're going to dive into the... I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into the text together. That sound good? So why don't you read with me? We got uh, Galatians 4 verses 8 through 20. And we'll read this and then I'll pray and we'll unpack it. Uh, Paul writes this to the churches of Galatia. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. We'll explain what this means later. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then's become of your blessedness, or your translation might say of your joy? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. But for no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. 
It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let me pray. We'll unpack that and try to explain the text this morning. Father, uh, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Thanks, Jesus, that as we just read, you know us. That it's not just us knowing you, but Jesus, it's us being known by you. I hope my words to be clear this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me as I teach. Might you even teach me as I teach. Um, I pray against the enemy who would desire us to, to always be turning back and never to be looking forward, Jesus, to you. Pray for those who don't know you yet that today might be the day they would. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts off, and he starts off with the before. He starts off with the before you knew God. Before someone becomes a Christian, in other words, is maybe just an easier way to say it. Uh, You know, Paul starts off with a reminder of life before knowing God. Many of the Galatian Christians here, they'd been worshipers uh, at at the idol-worshiping temples before they became a Christian. And before uh, they became followers of Jesus, they followed uh, pagan religion. They followed all all kinds of just kind of crazy off-the-wall stuff. And then they turned from those things. They repented. They turned to Jesus Christ, and they became followers of Jesus. And look what Paul writes. He says, before, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And he's going to go on here in a second in verse 9 and tell him, so why are you turning back? And at first reading, you might read it and think, uh, so they're, they're turning back to their pagan ways? Well, actually, no. What they were turning to uh, wasn't back to pagan religion. It was to biblical legalism. And that's really the, the crux of the matter in the whole book of Galatians. Paul is telling them to avoid legalism. Do you know what legalism is? Legalism is where uh, you have to do all these things to be pleasing and honoring to God in some way, shape, or form. You know, we kind of do this in our lives in general. We try to dress the right way. We try to talk the right way. We try to work harder. We try to, all that is, that's kind of pagan legalism of trying to be okay with the world. But there's also this gospel, and it's not gospel, I should say. It's biblical legalism that all these rules that we find in scripture and think if if I have to obey every single one in order for God to ever love me or be pleased with me. Now those rules are there for a good purpose. They're for your good, right? But if you're trying to find your salvation in keeping all of those rules, oh man, you're in for all kinds of hurt. And some of you have lived that life. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul's speaking here against biblical legalism. And and actually what Paul ends up telling us here, friends, is that uh, biblical legalism, religious legalism, is just as dangerous, if not more, more dangerous than pagan false religion. You know why? Because somebody who's irreligious, guess what? They know that they're far from God. I've got, I've got buddies who, uh, uh, from, from high school, uh, friends of mine, family of mine who, uh, listen, they, they know based on their lifestyle that they are far from God. So you know what's far more dangerous than that? Is somebody who thinks they're close to God because they go through all the rituals and all the motions and they find out in the end, I'm not close to God at all. 
I've been working and working and working and it's never enough. And friends, it'll never be enough. That's, that's biblical legalism. It's, it's more dangerous and both of them are dangerous because both, basically, you know what they are? They're, they're you trying to be your own savior. See, so if I just run off in an irreligious way and do all these things to fill the gaps and the voids and the holes in my heart, all I'm doing is I'm trying to save myself from pain and from suffering, right? And if I, if I go through all the motions of, of living a right life and this, this kind of legalistic lifestyle, biblically speaking, doing all these right things, being a good person, as I kind of joked before, of helping enough old ladies cross the street, um, I'm, I'm still, it's the same thing, I'm being my own savior. I'm trying to feel good enough about myself in relation to everyone else. But the problem is, when you compare it to Jesus, it's never enough. Because the standard is him and of perfection. So Paul says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. But as we're going to find out as we keep reading, uh, before knowing God, friends, through Jesus Christ, we are all enslaved and without hope. And you can be enslaved to uh, things of this world, or you can be enslaved to a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of legalism, and both are incredibly dangerous for your soul. That's what Paul's telling us here. Before knowing God, we were all enslaved and without hope. Now, he says, look at that in verse 8, just to kind of explain this a little more. He says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You know, uh, false gods are not gods. You realize that, right? We might call them gods, lowercase g, idols, but they're not gods. Paul tells us in, uh, tells the Corinthian church in chapter 8 of his first letter, verse 4, he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but the one true God. But he also goes on in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians to say that, uh, he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, he just said they're not gods, but he says they actually, they're sacrificing to demons. And that these false gods, these idols, are actually, there's demonic spiritual influence in them. Now, I'm I'm not going to be this guy who says, look for a demon under every rock, right? But I'm telling you, there's a spiritual battle going on for your soul. And when you're enslaved to something other than honoring and loving Jesus, you've subjected your stuff, your, your, yourself to uh, some spiritual uh, oppression and to spiritual enslavement. Because though the gods don't exist, we can be subject and enslaved to evil forces if we worship anything other than Jesus. And that's the truth. See, before knowing God through Jesus Christ, we were all enslaved without hope. Paul tells the Ephesians the same thing in chapter 2. He says, before you believed in Christ, you were separated from him. You weren't considered to be citizens of Israel. You were not included in what the covenants promised. You were without hope and without God in the world. And he confounds those two things as being the same thing. Being apart from God, being apart from the gospel, leaves you without hope and enslaved to those things which are not even really God's. But as Paul goes on, then he, he kind of, uh, he keeps making this point in chapter, in verse 9, excuse me. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, by becoming a Christian, friends, you remove yourself from the slavery of those things and become free 
in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, now that you're free, why is it that you want to turn back to a form of slavery? Because what had happened in these churches is these people from from Jerusalem, these Judaizers came in and they said, "Uh, yeah, trust Jesus, but then you also have to keep all our rules if you really want to please God. Paul says, no, 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 no. Yeah, there's a way you should live. I agree. You should live a good, moral, honoring life under the law of Christ. But in terms of the rules of the law and following rules in order to earn your salvation or be pleasing to God, no. Jesus paid it. How's the hymn go? All. All means all. You you can't do anything else to earn his favor. It has been paid in full. It's been paid in full. See, and Paul Paul tells them this. Why would you turn back then to, to a form of slavery? And what I really think is, is, in, is really profound here. Look at verse 9. He says, that you, now that you've come to know God, or rather, it's almost like he corrects himself, isn't it? Not that you know him, but actually rather that he knows you. See, the essence of true salvation isn't so much you knowing God, it's God knowing you. And Paul's saying, or, or maybe even in addition, he's not, saying, he's not really saying that you knowing God isn't part of you being saved, but but really, it's about God knowing you. It's about you being known and deeply loved. And to be known by God means that you have a personal relationship with him. You ever gone somewhere and uh, you can't get in because maybe your name's not on the list? You ever had that experience? Um, uh, different stories, a lot of us could probably tell of some of those things, right? And like you get there and they're like, oh, sorry, I don't know you. But then somebody who knows you comes out and they're like, yeah, they're with me. I know them. And the guy's like, all right, you're going in. That, that's the essence of, of being saved is being known by God. It's having a relationship with him. Not that just you know about God, but that he knows you and you know him in relationship. It, it's, it's huge, friends. That's the essence of true salvation. See, Jeremiah, it was in the Old Testament too. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Jesus says the essence of salvation is knowing God. In John chapter 17, verse three, this is eternal life that they know you. But then in Philippians, Paul also communicates what he communicates here to the Galatians, that it's being known by God. Look at this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Literally, that could be translated as dog dung. And it wasn't in as a... Nice way of me saying it now. It was much harsher language, a little more street language there. You can fill in the blanks. In order that I may gain Christ. I count all my good works as rubbish so that I could gain Jesus Christ and be found in him. Being known by him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or comes from good works, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to believe God, to believe Jesus. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Look at this. Here it is. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, I press on because I'm known, because I'm loved. Friends, uh, there's who you were. And if you trust Jesus Christ, you turn, you repent of your sin, uh, you put your faith in his work on the cross, and that's what saves you. Not your good works, not coming to church, not sitting in that pew, not giving, not singing, not serving. None of that saves you. Can I just be really direct with you? I'm incredibly afraid that some of you have sat in a pew in a church your entire life. Some of you for decades, some of you for weeks, some of you for years, whatever it is. And you've believed that because you've done that, that you have nothing to fear. But the reality is you're still enslaved. And you need to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. He is your only hope. Not your good works, not your name, not your status, not your wealth, not anything but Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You're saved by faith, friends. We could end the sermon there, but Paul goes on and he, he gives some implications, at least a few, of what it looks like then to be known by God, to be saved. We say saved, maybe you're new to the church and like, what's all this saved stuff? Saved from what? Well, saved from God's wrath. Right? Like, like, because I sinned, Josh Island deserves to take uh, God's wrath in hell for my sin. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, I've been rescued. I've been saved from that. Because Jesus took the punch of God's wrath. As Isaiah the prophet says, he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, to the last drop. And that's great news because it was for me. Now, Paul says there's some implications then in being known by God. And being saved. First off, I'm going to give you three, okay? There's more than these, but here's three that show up in this passage. You with me? Ready for the first one? All right, number one, I'm free. Friends, you are free. You're like, well, yeah, I live in America. I'm free. No, 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 no. Now, I'm not talking like politically free. I'm talking spiritually free. You're free from earning God's favor. Look, look at what Paul writes. He says, I, I know that you've come to know God, rather be known by God. How can you turn back again then to slavery? He's like, you're, you're free from that. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about the Jewish Old Testament law. See, these, think about it. Now, these people who were not Jewish, who are Gentiles, uh, who are worshiping pagan gods, they come to faith in Jesus. The Judaizers show up and they say, ah, not enough. You can't just trust Jesus and be a Christian. You also have to become Jewish to be a Christian. And so they start putting all of these rules and regulations on top of them and burning them up. And so these people who were never Jewish to begin with, all of a sudden they're following all of these Jewish rules. They're observing uh, days and months and seasons and years. Paul's like, why are you doing all this? And there's nothing wrong with you doing that. That's fine if you want to do it. But, but you're doing it thinking that somehow you're earning your salvation doing it. Why are you doing this? You're free. The implication seems to be that we should free from anything then that enslaves us, whether that's legalism or an addiction or some type of sin. We need to flee from those things that enslave us. Sometimes, sometimes it's relationships we need to flee from. So, they're, they're, listen, there's, there's all kinds of different things we need to flee from to not be enslaved by something so that we can maintain our freedom in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm afraid even that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's like, I came, I shared the gospel, and, and now you're turning back to these things? I'm afraid that maybe that was all just a waste of time. And you never really trusted Jesus to begin with. 
Paul's concern is that they've begun to find their identity elsewhere or that they've never truly found it in Jesus to begin with. Friends, you need to find your identity in Jesus and him alone. When you become a Christian, you are free. You're given a brand new identity. When you you trust Jesus, then you are now, as Paul wrote in Philippians, you are found in him. His righteousness is credited to you. Your sin and your filth and your junk and my junk is credited to him. The the big theological word is imputed. Nobody uses that word, so credited is a lot easier word to use, right? All of it's credited to him. All of his righteousness is credited to you. You're free. You have a new identity. So when, when God sees you, does he know you sin? Absolutely. But when he sees you in terms of your status before him, if you've trusted Jesus, guess who he sees? He sees Jesus. All of the, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, all of the things of compassion and all of the miracles and all the good deeds Jesus did. Guess who gets credit for that before the cross and before God? You do and I do. Try reading the gospels that way sometime and think of all the good things that Jesus, done, Jesus has done and you read it and you go, you know, if it worked like this, if you got to heaven and there was a balance sheet, and you trusted Jesus, it would be like, um, uh, had compassion on the woman at the well. To Randy's credit. And Randy's like, I didn't meet that woman. No, but Jesus did. And all of his good deeds are being credited now to you. They're on your account now. So you're free from trying to earn anything through your good works or earn salvation. You have a new identity. And a lot of times our insecurity about our acceptance with God is the reason then that we make idols. See, an idol is anything, good or bad, that becomes a God in our life. It raises to the level of God in our life. And so we tend to worship idols. We're all idol worshipers. We do it. You and I both. And the reason we do that, friends, is because ultimately it's insecurity. We we, we get insecure in what Jesus has done for us and in who we really are. And we think, uh, I've got to find that fulfillment or that uh, that favor somewhere else. And so sometimes, uh, I've got a little acronym here that I've I've shared with you before. I share with my classes at Grace when I teach uh, that I think is helpful in understanding and identifying idols in your life. Things that are good. Sometimes things that are bad, but they take the place of God in your life. And you need to find your security in Jesus Christ and turn from these things and turn to him. First, I just think of an acronym, I, idols. Think items. You got some stuff, and I've got some stuff that can become an idol in my life. Maybe it's your home. Maybe, uh, I'll be honest, for me sometimes it's electronics. Like, I'm just kind of a nerd. I like stuff with a little fruit logo on it. Um... Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, fill in the blank, a car, material things. It's items that you've turned into an idol. Sometimes uh, in, in churches, you know, the color of the carpet, you've heard the stories, right? The joking stories or the picture on the wall. Those items can become an idol. They take the place of God and they're worshiped and adored. Sometimes uh, D is duties, stuff that you do. If I'm not careful for me, you know, I can find my identity in being a pastor. And so uh, if I do that, and then when, when I fail or when um, things don't go the way that I thought they should or, or 
figure it, you know, any of those things. I find my identity and my, my activity and, and that those things that are good to do that I should do, but at the same time when I fail or when they're not received in the right way and I find my identity there, then my identity is crushed. You have those things too, right? You might find your identity in your job. You might find it in uh, roles in your life of being a mom or being a dad or being a daughter or, fill, you know. Sometimes those are idols. Sometimes it's other people. Ooh, this is a tough one. Do you know other people can be idols in your life? Parents, your children, there is great danger in your children becoming idols in your life. To where uh, you revolve everything in your calendar, everything in the world around a little three-foot monster. Isn't I right, though? I mean, think about how people just, they, they just, now, is it good to, to love your kids and provide opportunity for them, all that stuff? Absolutely. But man, if, if they're running the show and everything revolves around their schedule and their calendar, that's bad news. Because here's what happens with them. When they grow up, and they get into real life and they realize like the rest of us have that life doesn't revolve around me, they get crushed. Or when they're made to be God and they can't live up to the expectations of their parents because they never will because they're not God, they get crushed. And it, it provides danger for you and for them. But others can be an idol. There's a whole bunch of others we could go into. Longings can be an idol. Longings can... There's, there's some good longings in life, isn't there? Maybe for, for children, for marriage, for, uh, for financial stability, for all of those longings, whatever that is. Um, but if you're not careful, that becomes an idol and you find all of your value and all your worth on whether or not your longing is fulfilled. And it's crushing when it's not. You're enslaving yourself to these things, friends. And you know another one? This is a subtle one that sometimes we don't think about, but sometimes we can find our identity in our sufferings, in what's happened to me. Yeah, see, see, you don't understand. Like, you don't, you don't know how that went down. You don't, you don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. You don't know. You're not me. And now your identity is just that of the victim, of the person suffering all the time. Do your sufferings matter? Yeah, we're actually going to see that in the text this morning. But you can't find your identity there, friends. It can become an idol if you're not careful. So maybe use that little grid just to identify idols in your life and repent of them. Because Paul says, why would, why would you turn back to being enslaved when you're free? Loved ones, you're free. Here's the second thing I see here. And uh, these are related and unrelated in some ways. The second thing I would say is Paul tells us we must have no sacred cows. We're like, what? where'd that come from? I don't see anything about cows in this Bible passage. You know the idiom of no sacred cows, right? Maybe if you get the chance to come to India with me uh, at some point and uh, with a team from our church, we could take you along. And uh, those of you who've been there, you've seen it. You'll see uh, cattle that are just kind of, because they're worshipped in the Hindu religion, is divine. And so they're just let free to wander wherever they want to go. And sometimes there'll be traffic jams because there's a cow sitting on the median. I'm not kidding, like we've seen it. And uh, at the same time, there's people starving. And it's kind of like, well, you could have steak dinner, but the cow's sacred, so we can't kill it. That's the idea of no sacred cows. 
But now, now, why do I say that? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 12. Paul says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul said, I've become as you are. See, Paul was Jewish. But you know what he did when he showed up among the Gentile people? He quit living according to the Jewish law. Now, he was bound to the law of Christ, living a moral, right lifestyle, but he he quit living and keeping all of these Jewish rules. He wanted to be like them so that he might win them to Jesus Christ. What what Paul did in doing this is he's letting go of things that uh, were really a part of his identity for a long time, and he's saying, you know what? That goes in an open hand. I can let that go so that these people can come to know Jesus Christ. And no sacred cows mean, that's kind of a value of our church, that we want to be known in that way that, that, listen, if, if, if we can change anything, we're going to change it so that people meet Jesus. Now, we're not going to change the gospel. We're not going to change our doctrinal statement, some of those things, right? There's certain things we cannot change or we cease to even be Christians, but there's a lot of stuff we can change. And if it means people meeting Jesus, why wouldn't we change it? Man, our life is so short. I turned 40 a couple weeks ago. That's the top of the hill. (laughs) I hope it's not, but I think it's the top. It might be the the backside for me. I don't know. But all I know is life is short, friends. It's short. What am I doing wasting my time with, with... uh, enslaving myself to traditions and to certain things. And when there's people who need Jesus Christ and, and if something doesn't change, it could be 40 years of my life wasted and an eternity for them in hell. No sacred cows, right? Paul says, I, I, I became as you are. He, he tells the Corinthians this too. He says, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's why, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, a gospel-centered ministry, a gospel-centered church is willing to change for the sake of the gospel. And there's so many, friends, it's, it breaks my heart. There are so many churches that are, that, are, uh, that are shrinking and dying. Do you know why? Because they're unwilling to change. They're unwilling to adapt things so that more people meet Jesus Christ. They expect the world to adapt to us. It's not going to happen. We never change the gospel. But like Paul, we should be willing to become as they are as much as we can without sinning so that Jesus is made much of. Amen? We like to say it like this. um, That uh, Jesus is sacred. God's word is sacred but our opinions and traditions and preferences are not. Therefore, we hold everything other than God and his word in an open hand with a loose grip, and we're willing to let it go for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Well, Paul did that. He became all things to all people. He became as they are, uh, not just to do it to be cool or to be accepted, but so that they would meet Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why. And then he goes on and he starts to tell the story. This, we get a glimpse here in these two verses in 13 and 14 of how Paul came to these churches in Galatia. Look, look why he was there. We, we, we don't have any clue in Acts. A lot of times in the book of Acts, you can find background story to some of the New Testament letters. With Galatians, we really don't get any background of how Paul got there. But evidently, Paul was suffering. 
And what I want you to see here is that Paul's suffering and your suffering, another implication of being known by God and being saved is that your suffering has purpose. There's purpose in your suffering. He said, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Evidently, the reason Paul ended up among these churches is he had some kind of illness, some kind of sickness, some kind of potentially even disfigurement. Because look at verse 14. He goes, and though my condition was a trial to you. Some commentators would argue that whatever was going on with Paul, that maybe it was just incredibly disfiguring to the point that people were like, Ew, I don't want to touch him. I don't want to be around him. I... He said, even though my condition was a trial to you, look what they did. You didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, a messenger of God. You received me as Christ Jesus. Do you see what God did here? I think this may be the thing that, that's referenced in 2 Corinthians um, when, when Paul says... Uh, that, that he has a thorn in the flesh and that uh, God has told him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That it may be some physical ailment that even shows up right here in Galatians that, that, Paul never, that God never took away from Paul so that he would be dependent upon God. But do you see the implications of, of Paul's suffering? It seems to imply that Paul would have never potentially even come to these churches if it wasn't for his suffering. He would have never preached the gospel among them. We wouldn't have the letter to the Galatians if Paul hadn't suffered. Friends, your suffering has purpose, and God does this all the time. He takes something that is incredibly hard, and he uses it for your good or for the good of someone else going forward. And you don't always see it in the moment. Because the reality is, in the moment, I'm just going to say it, it sucks. Sorry if I offended you, but I just don't know a better word. But here's the deal. God uses that for good in the lives of those, he says in Romans 8, of those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul's suffering, it was so bad that people were like, this is a, like, I don't know if I want to be around you. It's just a trial. And and God uses it in such a way that... uh, that they received him as Jesus. And these people, hundreds of people, came to know Jesus Christ and the gospel was birthed in this place that was totally void of the gospel and the church grew. And I bet Paul would say now in eternity that that short moment, he writes about it actually, that short momentary time of suffering was all worth it in the end. Loved ones, your suffering has purpose. I don't know what you're going through. We all have it. Because we live in a world that's broken but it's not without purpose. You're known by God. He loves you. And as you turn to him and as you trust him, listen, I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. It's gonna be hard. But he will use it for good either in your life or in the lives of those around you. His word promises it. In fact, he writes to the Corinthians, he says, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes I think you just have to go through something And I don't know, maybe God's teaching you or me something in it, but then 
you find out later uh, that, hey, God's using this to bring comfort to somebody else because the same comfort he gave to me, I can pass on. Friends, your suffering has purpose. That's Paul's point. Uh, That's the point. It's there in the text. His suffering had purpose, and so does yours. As he wraps up the passage, he goes back and just uh, talks more about their freedom and why are you turning away from these things. But, friends, I would commend to you to, to love and trust Jesus Christ, to be known by him if you haven't. And if you are, know that you're free. You're free to live a life pleasing to him. You don't have to earn his favor. It's all been earned for you by Jesus on the cross. That uh, hopefully as, as, a, as a group of people, we would have no sacred cows and we'd be willing to change things for the sake of the gospel. That more people would meet Jesus and that if you're suffering, which if you're not, you're probably either coming out of suffering or you're heading into it or you're in it. Your suffering has purpose. It's not without purpose in God's sight. Trust him. Amen? I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing a song and call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thanks that, um, Jesus, we have freedom in you. Uh, help us to be a church that, uh, that prioritizes the gospel and not our preferences or opinions or traditions. But Jesus, you and your word and the gospel above all things. Help us too then to know that uh, Maybe even the suffering we're going through now is going to be used to that purpose, to bring many more to faith in you, and Jesus, to bring great glory to you, that as we sang earlier, that Jesus, you, even in our suffering, might be highly exalted. Lord, I pray for those who are still on the before side of that picture, they've never trusted you. Uh, hey, if that's, if that's you and you're hearing me pray, it's very simple. It's simply you uh, praying to God. Uh, you're like, that's too simple. I, I know it, it's simple. You just pray to him and say, Lord, I I know that I'm hopeless and helpless on my own. I have uh, no hope of saving myself. I know that Jesus died on the cross in my place and offers me salvation and his righteousness. And so, Jesus, I put my trust in you and you alone for that. If you would simply pray that from your heart, it's, it's, it's a matter of faith. And the Bible says that whoever would believe that in his heart and confess that with his mouth will be saved. Father, we love you. We pray all this through Jesus. Amen.